Amen. Church, I invite you to open with me this morning to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 6, but while you're turning there, our kiddos are going to head out kindergarten through second grade. Um, if you we, if you're fall in that category, we've got a room back here set up for you. We would love for you to go back there and um, enjoy a time of worship as well. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. We've been walking through this little book very slowly. Um, in fact, much slower than I normally walk through any book of the Bible, much less one that is this short. And it's really because there's just so much here. Um, there's so many twists and turns and changes in topic and all sorts of things as we walk through Malachi. And, and, and we've had to walk slowly to make sure we don't miss anything. And this morning is, is, a, is a passage that certainly we don't need to miss. It's a hard passage. Um, it's challenging. It's not one that, like I said, most pastors don't circle on their calendar and say, man, I can't wait to preach from Malachi 3, 6 through 12. It talks specifically about giving. It talks about, um, to the Israelites, about their pocketbooks and their wallets. I mean, that's just the reality. And God paints a picture for them why stewardship is necessary, why giving is necessary for his people and for his church. But my encouragement to you is this. Our tendency, and, and we've walked through this tendency throughout Malachi, actually. Our tendency is to take a teaching like this that's hard and say, oh, well, that's for those people back then. That's not relevant for today. That's not relevant for today's church. It's not relevant for the New Testament, some would say. But the reality is this. It's always applicable. God's word is always good, and it's always meaningful. And so as we walk through this passage, we may not necessarily only take away from this why we should give, why we should offer our tithes and offerings, but we're going to see something far beyond that, a deeper understanding and a deeper meaning behind that activity. Because you see, as I walked through this passage over the last week, as hesitant as I may have been initially, there's such a beautiful picture of God's grace all along the way. Because the point of the passage is not to guilt us into being more generous. The point of the passage is not to get for us to give more in an offering plate or to write a bigger check to the church. That's not the point of this passage. We're going to talk about giving, certainly, but that's not the overall meaning. You see, the point is that God, the sovereign king of the universe, he invites us into his work and calling people to salvation to himself. Did you catch that? This God, the sovereign king of the universe, the one who owns everything and is sovereign over everything, it is that king that invites his people here into this work. And the way that he invites them into this is through giving. Church, the reality is this. This is the God that these people, as we've seen over and over again, they had wronged this God. They had offended this God. And over and over again, God was speaking against them and saying, this is how you have erred. This is how you have departed from my commandments. And instead of God throwing his hands up at these people and saying, I'm done with you, instead he continues here at the end of chapter 3 and he says, this is how you can be a part of my work. This is the way towards reconciliation. And guess what? That same invitation is issued to us today as well. This God that we have offended on occasion, this God whose commands we have not always kept, at no point in time does he say, I can't use you. I can't work through you. 
You can't be a part of my work. No, instead he says to us as his people today, this is how you can be a part of what I'm doing to reach this community and to reach the nations. Would you stand with me this morning and honor the reading of God's word, Malachi chapter three, beginning in verse six. The word of the Lord through Malachi to the people then and to us today as his people says this. Because I, the Lord, have not changed. You, descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, God says. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. In verse 12, this is beautiful. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Let's pray together. God, your word is always good. It is always profitable. And God, it's through your word that you continue to call us to yourself to live in right relationship with you. God, as we walk through this passage this morning, God, I pray that we hear from you. And God, that we hear clearly what your word says to us. Lord, that yes, you're going to challenge us, but God, I know we will be encouraged as well. God, I pray that any distractions or any noise that we may have in our culture or around us today, Lord, that you'll silence all of those. That as we look at your word now, that it's the most holy word of God, Lord, that we um, are absolutely attentive to who you are and what you're saying to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I may have thrown the guys upstairs off just a little bit because normally I introduce a main idea to the message before we ever look at the passage. And as I worked through the passage this week, there was just so much in that big idea. I thought, you know what? To make sure we get it, we're going to walk really slow through it. And so the points of the message this morning are actually going to be uh, the main idea kind of unpacked in three different ways. So we're going to go statement by statement today. So if you've got a listening guide with you, don't get lost in the middle of it. We're going to refer back to that top line, that main idea, over and over again throughout the message. And we'll fill each blank in as we go, okay? The first truth we find is, is this in verses 6 and 7. Again, as God is offering to us a, a way of reconciliation, a way of coming back to himself, we find that God offers us a way of returning to him. God offers to us a way of returning to him. You see, we find in these first couple of verses in this passage uh, something that clarifies the character of God and how the people of Israel had lived in relationship to him along the way. And so we find, first of all, again, in verse 6 and and 7, we find that God offers a way of reconciliation in keeping with his character. 
in keeping with who he is. That everything that we're going to see about this passage today is in keeping with who God has said he is all along the way. Notice what it says in verse 6, first of all. He says, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You see, that name, the Lord, this is the proper name of God. This is as if God is saying to his people, listen, the, the God that I've always been, the Lord that rescued you out of the hands of the Egyptians, yes, that same God, that's who I am today as well. And we find here that he keeps his promises. He affirms with his people how he has kept his promises all along the way. Notice what he says. He says, I have not changed. Essentially what he's saying here is this. He's saying, listen, I have made promises to you along the way and I have kept every single one of those promises. We looked last week and the week before at various promises that God was making to his people then and to us about who he would be and what he would do around us. And then we looked at the New Testament and we saw exactly how every step of the way he has indeed came through. Perhaps God had in mind what he said back in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 31, and this will be on the screen. He says, He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your ancestors that he swore to them by an oath, because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. This is who God was all along the way. And so once again, here at Malachi, in the midst of all of this hard talk with them, this real talk where he's calling them out for their, their inactivity or their wrong activity, he is still saying, I am still the God who keeps promises. But secondly, we see this, talking about God's character again. We find that he is patient and he is gracious. He's patient and he is gracious. Notice in verse 6, there's a very unique phrase that is used here that we need to pay careful attention to. He says, I've not changed. Then he says this, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Now, that's probably lost on us, but it wouldn't have been lost on the first hearers of this word. The descendants of Jacob were the Israelites. They were God's covenant people. And so why in the world does God say here, he doesn't call them Israelites. He, he steps further back and he says, you're the descendants of Jacob. Perhaps God had in mind Genesis chapter 32 and verse 28. We find here that God changes the name of Jacob, again, their ancestor, their forefather. He changes his name to Israel. Notice what it says. After Jacob wrestles with God, it says, Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and you have prevailed. And so when God says to his people here, you are the descendants of Jacob, he's reaching way back in time and he's saying, listen, don't forget, don't forget how patient I have been with you all along the way from the very beginning. Guess what the name Jacob actually means? Deceiver. Deceiver. One who deceives. And so when God says here to his people, he's saying, listen, you are the descendants of a deceiver. He's saying to them, don't forget how patient I have been with you. How gracious and kind I have been with you. As hard as he's been on us and these people here in Malachi, listen, he is still the same gracious and patient God all along the way. But there's something unfortunate about this way of reconciliation as well. Those were good things. God's affirming his character. But notice in verse 7 how the way to reconcile with God, it's actually hidden to those who deny their sin. The way of reconciliation is hidden for those who deny their sin. Notice what he says in verse seven. There at the end, there's this question that is asked 
uh, from God's people directed to God, they say, how can we return? How can we return? This is a loaded question. There's more here than meets the eye. Really what the people of God are saying here, like they have every step of the way so far, they're saying, God, I think you got this one wrong. You're calling us back to yourself, but the reality is, here's the question, how can we return to you if we've never left? That's the real question. That's what they're really saying here. God, why do we need to come back to you? We haven't gone anywhere. We haven't done anything wrong. What they do all along the way? They said early on, listen, how have we denied your love for, for us? Right? That was a question. And then he says that you have wronged me. And they say, how have we wronged you? Again, over and over again, God's people and us, we seem to miss it. We seem to be reluctant to admit our wrongdoing and the error of our, error of our ways. Why? Because we don't like admitting that we are lost. We don't like throwing our hands up and saying, you know, I can't do this. Or I've made a mistake. Or I've messed up. Does anybody in the room like to admit that they're wrong? None of us, right? None of us like to say, you know what, I got this one wrong this time. And we certainly don't like saying that to God. Why? Because we're already maybe not walking with him and, and we never want to come back to him and say, you know what, God, I think I missed the mark. I think I've, I've made a mistake somewhere along the way. The reality is every one of us here are directionally challenged when it comes to walking with God. Every one of us. You know, my family and I, we are still new to Cave Spring and Cedartown. And, and, and when we came here, I've, I've kind of gotten over this in some ways, but I'm still not over it entirely. I still half the time don't know where in the world I am. Uh, just last week, I went to the Minutemen cabin, and I got stuck uh, in a traffic jam here on Cave Spring Road, and I called Wayne, and I said, hey, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know how to get to you. There's only one way, as far as I'm concerned, to your cabin. There's multiple ways, as it turns out. Um, and the GPS revealed that to me. There's many ways to get there. Why was I so lost? Because all of this is so unfamiliar to me. But the reality is this. Every one of us are just as directionally challenged when it comes to walking with God. There's times where we have to throw our hands up and say, you know what, Lord, I, I got to punch that address in. I got to figure out where I'm at in life. I got to figure out what's going on. And I got to humble myself for just a moment and realize how lost I really am. But here's what Jesus does later on. In spite of the fact that we fail to admit when we're lost or when we're wrong, here's what Jesus affirms later on. He, Jesus illustrates his offer of reconciliation through the parable of the loving father. This is often called the parable of the prodigal son. It may be more familiar to you in that way. It's found in Luke chapter 15 in verses 11 through 32. Before I share some of that with you, Listen to what God does in, in verse 7. As he's calling out to his people, he says to them, Return to me, and I will return to you. What an interesting thing that God says here. God's character is the same all along the way. Don't forget that. So then Jesus says, as he's teaching his disciples and those listening, those bystanders, he, he shares this parable. And he says, listen, the kingdom of God is like this. The love of God, a relationship with God, it looks like this. Here's what he says. He says, there was this son who, who, went, who received a great inheritance, and he went and he squandered it away with wild living. And once he realized the error of his ways, guess what it says in the parable? He began to return home. And here's what's so beautiful. This is why this is called the parable of the loving father. As the young man began to return home, the father dropped everything he was doing, and he ran and hugged him. Notice that as the young man recognized the error of his ways, that 
understanding that admission of guilt as he just began the first steps of returning home, the loving father ran to meet him. Listen, church, all God wants you to do today, this gracious invitation he has for every one of us and he had for his people then, is just admit where we have wronged. Understand that we need that way of reconciliation. You see, in spite of our past sinfulness and even our blindness to our own sin, God still graciously offers us a way of returning home, a way of reconciling with him. But then, in response to our blindness, God begins to graciously open the eyes of these people then and our eyes as well. As we get to verses 8 and 9, again, we're unpacking the big idea this morning. God offers us a way of returning to him, and here's the second phrase, in spite of our rebellious activities. In spite of all the ways that we have wronged him. You see, in verses 8 and 9, God makes clear to his people exactly how they have lived in rebellion to him. Every specific thing related to giving him their tithes and offerings, he begins to explain to them how they have wronged him. And although God is speaking these words to these people then, he is also speaking these same words to us as well as his people. Notice how God characterizes rebellion, how he describes rebellious activity. In the first part of verse 8, we find that our rebellion, it is often deliberate. It is deliberate. It's not by accident. I think oftentimes we look at our sin and we say, oh man, the devil made me do that, right? Or whoops, I- I'm sorry God, I-, I know I messed up there and I stepped out of line a little bit and-, 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 and it was just a mistake. But the reality is most of the time, a lot of the time, our rebellion against God is absolutely deliberate. And that was true of God's people here as well. Notice what it says in the first part of verse 8. God asks a question of his people. He says, will a man rob God? And as if he's being redundant, he continues. He says, yet you are robbing me. And then you ask, how do we rob you? What's the big word there? Rob, right? This word is so unique in the Old Testament. It doesn't come up often, especially in relation between God's people and him. And yet in this one verse, in these few lines of of the Bible, he says it three different times. Why? To stress the point that we have deliberately, and God's people here have deliberately wronged God. You see, the word is repeated three times to kind of get their attention, to help us also understand the bluntness of exactly what God is saying. Quite literally, God is saying this. Listen close. You have deliberately and deceitfully taken something from me that is rightfully mine. How harsh is that? God is telling them, make no mistake about it, guys. You have deliberately erred. You have deliberately violated my commandments. This is not just a mistake. It is deliberate. But notice this also in the second part of verse 8. It's not just deliberate. This kind of ties in with that. We often rebel against God's clearly stated commands. We rebel against what God has clearly said is wrong. In the second part of verse 8, he explains to them exactly how they have wronged him. He says, by not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. God says, this is how you have robbed me. You asked and I'm going to tell you, is what he says. In response to their continued objection and denial of their rebellion, God places a very specific way before his people of how they have wronged him. And he talks about this thing called the tithe. Now, I told you we were going to talk about this this morning because the scriptures talk about it. So buckle up for just a minute. I think we're all going to learn something about what it means to tithe. 
There's three things I want us to understand this morning about the tithe, exactly what it was then, and then we're going to see how this applies to us as his people today. The first thing we need to recognize is this. The tithe was intended to be a tenth that was holy to the Lord. Listen close. The tithe was meant to be a tenth of their possessions that was considered holy to the Lord. God draws here from Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30 as he's giving some of his first instructions to Israel. Listen to what he says. He says, Every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, it belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. In other words, what God is saying here, he's repeating this to his people, and he's saying, listen, all of this is rightfully mine. All I'm asking from you is 10% of it. He's saying, bring 10% of what is already rightfully mine, bring it back to me. Now, this is lost on us because we have something called the man-made dollar in our currency, right? But notice what he says in Leviticus 27.30. What does he refer to over and over again? He doesn't say dollars and cents. He talks about these pieces of his creation. Why? Because that was the currency of the time. He's talking about the harvest. He's talking about the grains. He's talking about the fruit from the trees. He's saying, listen, all of that that I, as your creator, have blessed you with, guess what? That already belongs to me. We are so far culturally removed from that time that we fail to recognize that as we live in a new world now where there's a different sort of currency, all of it is still his. All of it still belongs to him rightfully. And all he asks here of his people and of us is 10%. Notice the second truth about the tithe. The tithe was intended to be entrusted to those responsible for the spiritual direction of God's people. It was intended to be entrusted to those who were responsible for the spiritual direction of God's people. In Numbers chapter 18 and verse 28, God says to his people through Moses then, he says, you are to present an offering to the Lord from every tenth you receive from the Israelites. Give some of it to the priest Aaron as an offering to the Lord. So literally what he says here is, hey, I want you to bring, he tells us how to do this. He says, I want you to bring this offering and entrust it to those who are responsible for spiritually leading you. And he says, I want you to unhand it and understand with, again, without reservation that they're going to take care of it. They're going to be obedient to what God expects of them. But here's the last part. And I think this was, it was new for me as an understanding and it may be new for all of us this morning. There's a thir third truth about the tithe that is very important as it relates to ministry. The tithe then served the specific purpose of meeting the needs of those in spiritual leadership, the refugees, the orphans, and the widows. It had a very specific purpose. In Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 29, this is described for us exactly how the tithe is supposed to be used. He says, then the Levite who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your city gates, they may come, eat, and be satisfied. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of the hands that you do. God says, this is how we're meeting those needs. It is through your tithes and offerings. I want to illustrate it for you like this. I want to tell you a story. Most of, most of you in this room don't get to see the picture of ministry that happens Monday through Friday here at this church. 
And that's understandable, right? You're not going to come and sit with me and walk with me throughout a day. You don't get to see. I, I, there's no telling what some of you think that I'm doing all the time. Uh, there's some of you that ask me, what in the world do you do all day? Okay? And I say sermons don't write themselves. But there's so much more to it than that. Because Monday through Friday, there are needs that occur in this community that you may not have your eyes open to. And I want to walk you through an example from just this past week. It's not an isolated incident. It happens every single week, in fact. On Tuesday morning at about 11 o'clock, um, a young lady showed up to the church here on the front porch of the fellowship hall. One of our church members answered the door. Um, they just happened to be here at that time and answered the door and then got my attention and said, hey, there's someone here. You need to come talk to her. I walked outside and immediately recognized the needs. Uh, it was this young lady. She was about 20 years old. Um, she had a bag in her hand that had some trash in it um, and, and nothing else. She had a, a blanket thrown over her shoulder, and it was 95 degrees outside. She was obviously mentally disturbed. There was obvious some, some conditions in her life that uh, had caused trauma or, or some things that were going on that maybe didn't necessarily come to the surface just yet. So I called um, a friend of mine from the United Way. We as a church have partnered with United Way for these really hard needs around us in our community. And I called him and said, hey, I need you to come help me. And he came to the church, and for four hours on Tuesday, we sat and we talked with this young lady. We, we discussed with her how she ended up in the position she was in. Where is home? Who is mom and dad? Uh, how, how can we help you? What do we need to do? And it was a long conversation. It took a lot of time. And by the time we finished together, it was obvious that there was no hope for her for that day. There was nowhere she was going to be able to go. And so we, we uh, paid for a room for her to stay over at the local hotel. Local hotel. So she could not be on the streets for that night. We bought lunch and dinner for her, took care of her, provided these needs. And the next day, we got in touch with her mom. Her mom, who lived in Cedartown, needed some gas money to be able to come and pick her up so she could go home. So guess what? When she got to town, we swapped the card and we got her some gas. We filled the tank up. And she went home. I'll probably never see this family again. But here's why your tithes and offerings are important. I was here. Full time. An opportunity that I otherwise may not have had. And guess what? Without even batting an eye, we met these very real social needs in our community. So things that needed to happen. Could you imagine if she would have came that day and no one would have been here? And at church, I'm not sharing these things with you to be braggadocious in any way. I don't tell you about these stories often because I don't want to come across as kind of tooting my own horn or telling you what I'm doing week after week. But I tell you this in, in the context of this passage to tell you this is why it's important. This is the difference it makes in people's lives. If tithing does not happen in the local church, guess what? Your pastor is bivocational. He's not here to meet those needs. And guess what? We can't, without blinking an eye, go to the local gas station or the local grocery store and help people when they truly need help and say yes when we really need to say yes. It's important. But you see, our flawed inclination, listen to this, our flawed inclination is to relegate these teachings specifically to an ancient time. To say that this isn't relevant for us today, that this only worked in this tribal context of, of the people of Israel. But the reality is, Jesus emphasizes all of this once again. Yes, Jesus is the once and for all offering for our sins, but understand something. Us living under his grace, it requires more of us and never less. It requires more of us and never less. How do we know this to be true? Well, Jesus himself is teaching in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 21 and 22. 
He says to his disciples that day in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Guess what? Here's the Old Testament law. He says murder is wrong. And he says, here's the Old Testament expectation. Let's elevate that understanding and say, listen, it is wrong for you to hate people. It's just as bad. If that's not clear, he goes on in verses 27 and 28, and he talks about adultery. He says, you have heard that it was said, right, that committing adultery is wrong. Do not commit adultery. Again, Old Testament expectation, he elevates that, and he says this, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice, as Jesus emphasizes these Old Testament expectations, he says, listen, it's elevated to a new degree. Living under his grace requires more of us. Why? Because he has given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. So then Jesus goes on. He illustrates this truth through interactions with two contrasting individuals in Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 19. You see, as Jesus is ministering among the people, he interacts, first of all, in Luke 18 with a, with a young man. He was called the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, listen, how do I get into heaven? How do I have eternal life? And the young man goes on to say, he says, listen, I've done everything the law requires. I've done everything. Again, Old Testament law, Old Testament expectations. He says, I've done all of that. And then what does Jesus say? He says, one thing you lack, one thing you haven't done. You haven't rightly viewed the blessings that I've placed before you. He says, I want you to sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor, not 10% of it. I want you to sell everything. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. Again, the expectations are elevated again and again. In Luke 19, we have a contrasting character there. Jesus interacts there with a guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was not just one who had great wealth. He had acquired that great wealth by stealing it from other people. Dishonest practices. And yet when he meets Jesus, he not only gives back to the people that he has wronged, he gives them more than what he took from them to begin with. And he, what, he did, what does he do? He goes back to his house, he eats a meal with Jesus, and he follows him. Again, God requires more of us now than he may have then. God offers us a way of returning to him in spite of the fact that we have rebelled against him. But here's the last part of this main idea. Because he is faithful. Because he is faithful. In verses 10, 11, and 12, we have God describing some things about himself. And I said to you earlier in the service, I said, listen, if we're ever going to practice right stewardship, if we're ever going to give the way that God has asked us to give, we have to rightly understand who he is and who we are in relationship to him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way about this very passage of scripture. Listen to this. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy that can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. Understanding who God is as the sovereign king of the universe changes everything. And so he tells us three things about himself in these final three verses. First thing he says is this, God affirms that he is a promise keeper in verse 10. He says in verse 10, this is so interesting, he says, test me in this way. Put me to the test. Try and see if what I've promised you does not actually come true. 
This is the only occasion where God says, you can test me on this. You can see if I'm going to actually come through. Then in verse 11, God affirms that he is the sovereign ruler over creation. Because God says, listen, I'm going to pour out a blessing on you, one that is immeasurable. And then in verse 11, he says, I'm going to protect it from anything happening to it. Again, this blessing for them would have been a great harvest. And he says, listen, I'm going to protect it from the devourer. This would have been some sort of creature or insect or something. He says, listen, I am sovereign over creation. I am in control of everything, and I'm going to take care of you. And then in verse 12, I read it a moment ago, and I said it's so powerful because the the picture culminates with this. God affirms that he has invited us into a greater work. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Notice how all along the way, all throughout Scripture, God affirms that he is indeed a great commission God. It's not just in Matthew 28 when he gives the commission to the disciples and to us. No, all along the way, he is saying it is about the nations. It is about how these people are going to be reached through the your stewardship, through you partnering with me in this work. What a testimony to those around us as we give back to God what is rightfully his. What does it communicate to our watching world when we say, you know what, in spite of the economic uncertainties around us, all those things, we're still gonna give to God what is rightfully his. What does that communicate to a watching world, the trust that we have in this great God? And then what does it communicate when again and again he continues to come through, continues to take care of his people? It tells him, tells them rather, exactly who he is. My desire this morning has not been to guilt you into giving a tithe or an offering when you leave today. Some of you may do that. As you're leaving today, you may say, listen, I'm not doing that. I'm not giving or tithing the way that I should. It's all his, and I'm going to give something back to him. I'm going to trust that the church will use those resources to continue to bless this community, to further the mission of God, both here in Cave Spring and the ends of the earth. That may be what you do, and that's great. But here's ultimately what I desire for you to realize this morning. Jesus is our treasure. And in him, we've been given everything that we will ever need want, or desire. And it's when we realize that, church, when we we approach him with that posture and that understanding that we will gladly give everything we've got to him, not just the leftovers or the extra. Here's the last thing I want you to remember. I can think of no better invitation than this. We can never outgive God because he has given us everything in Jesus. Everything. Everything we will ever need. In poverty or in wealth. Listen, everything that we will ever need is found in Jesus. So again, instead of placing an offering in the plate as you leave today, place your heart and your life in the hands of Jesus.